0: so we had to keep the fish inside.
1: And he pushed me off and I broke my collarbone. They heard strange noises in the night and one of them was scared. We love stories!
2: Welcome to the Appleseed Studio. It's time for an hour that uses the power of great stories to help you make sense of the world and communicate with the people who are important to you. On the Appleseed, Great stories can change your world. I'm Sam Payne, your host. We're excited to bring you an hour of great stories today. This is going to be a fun one. So we hope you have some loved ones nearby to listen along with. And even that after the show is over, you sit around the kitchen table or the living room sharing tales and memories with one another. This episode is dropping right around April Fool's Day. And that has got us thinking about, well, it's got us thinking about pranks, You know, a mean-spirited prank can leave you feeling embarrassed and deceived, and that's not really the kind of prank that we want to dwell on today. We'd rather talk about the kind that's done in a spirit of fun and affection. I like this observation from Mac Barnett, co-author of the children's book The Terrible Two, a book about a pair of middle school pranksters. And Barnett says... Pranking is a great way to indicate the underlying absurdities of the world. There's so much effort put into creating order, and pranking exposes the truth that underneath this appearance of order is joy and laughter and disorder. Not only is a good prank harmless, but like a good story, it reveals an essential truth that would otherwise be hidden. Wise words about pranks and today we're bringing you an hour of stories about pranks hoaxes and general mischief and first we're going to hear a story about a couple of boys pulling a prank at summer camp here's just a little taste of that story wasn't the clip of the story, how could we do a prank episode without pranking you? You've been Rickrolled, and if you're scratching your head about what Rickrolling is, Rickrolling is a famous internet bait-and-switch prank where the unsuspecting user is enticed to click on an intriguingly titled video, and partway through it, jarringly flips over to the music video for Rick Astley's 1987 hit song, Never Gonna Give You Up. You know this one! And that is the kind of prank we're talking about. Catches you off guard, puts a smile on your face, and there's no harm done. Now, where was I? Oh, yes, a story about a couple of mischievous boys who hatch a plan to rig a competition at a summer Bible camp. You'll have to hear the whole story to find out how they did it, but here's just a little
3: hint. The weight of American money has very little to do with the value of American money.
2: A cryptic hint about what's to come later on in this episode of The Appleseed. The teller there is a longtime friend of the show, Bill Lepp, the West Virginia tall tale teller with, again, a kind of rowdy tale that has made him a favorite at storytelling festivals across the country, and we can't wait to bring it to you. We're also going to hear a little bit about a prank that was played on me in today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. We're looking forward to bringing that to you as well. We'll hear a staged reading of Mark Twain's satirical story about one of the most famous hoaxes in American history, the hoax of the Cardiff Giant.
4: And as I turned a dark angle of the stairway and an invisible cobweb swung in my face and clung there, I shuddered as one who had encountered a phantom.
2: That's coming up too, and a lot more. But we're gonna begin with a story by Bill Lepp. Bill is ready to entertain us along with our terrific Appleseed audience with a story called Vacation Bible School in the Appleseed Performance Studio. Let's join him. (laughs)
3: Thank you. I I grew up in a little town called Half Dollar, West Virginia. And uh, when I say little town, we had two streets. One was called Main Street. And the other one I'm pretty sure was called, no, that ain't Main Street. (laughs) And we had sort of your variety pack of Baptist churches and then a Methodist church. And our parents told us that there were some Catholics that lived over the hill but we didn't know if that was true or (laughs) if that was just something they told us so we'd go to bed at night. (laughs) But my buddy Skeeter and I loved the Half Dollar Baptist Church. Now when I say we loved the Baptist Church, I mean Baptist with a little b, because we were Methodists. What we loved was the building that was the Baptist church, because the attic was infested with bats. And on a spring evening, a summer evening, a fall evening, you could go and sit behind the church and just watch thousands and thousands of bats flying out of the eaves, flying out of the steeples. It was a beautiful sight to see. So Skeeter and I were very excited when it was announced that because they were doing renovations at the Methodist church, that we would be having a joint vacation Bible school at the Baptist church. And we were excited for several reasons. One, we had lots of Baptist friends, but it was difficult to tell the Baptist children from the Methodist children on the playground because we all knew the same bad words. So we're excited to have the opportunity to see the Baptist children being Baptist in their natural Baptist habitat. On top of that, we had never been in the Baptist church, but we understood that in the Baptist church, they had a baptismal, like a big bathtub where they did the baptisms. Now, when you're a Methodist, when you get baptized, you usually get baptized as an infant, and you just get a little bit of water sprinkled on your head. But the Baptists get the full board dunking. And I asked my dad why that was, and he said, that's because Methodists just have dirty minds. (laughs) But the Baptists are dirty all over. And then, Again, in the Methodist Church, you generally get in, uh, baptized as an infant. There's no rebaptism in the in the Methodist Church. But we understood that there were Baptists who got baptized like once a week. So we were excited to have the opportunity to see that. So we got to the Baptist church on the first day and the little old ladies that were running the vacation Bible school put the girls on one put the girls on this side of the sanctuary and the boys on this side of the sanctuary and we sang some hymns and there was a devotional and then it came time to give the offering. But instead of <clears throat> passing the plates in the traditional fashion, what happened was the boys got against this wall, the girls got against this wall, and we progressed forward. And someone had built in front of the altar an offering-giving device, the likes of which I had never seen before, and I have never seen since. It was a two-by-four standing upright about three feet tall. And bolted loosely, perpendicularly across the top of that was another (laughs) two-by-four. And on this side, tied on by binders twine, was a coffee can painted pink. And on this side, tied on by binders twine, was a coffee can painted blue. And the boys put their money in the blue can, and the girls put their money in the pink can, and whichever side went down, that gender won the offering. Yeah, that should make you a little uncomfortable. Uh, There's a lot wrong with that. And it's not even all theological. I mean, part of the problem is that the weight of American money has very little to do with the value of American money. A nickel is twice the size of a dime, but it's only worth half as much. And 10 pennies weighs more than a $100 bill. Now, my buddy Skeeter and I knew that firsthand because that winter there'd been a blizzard and we decided to go out and shovel some snow to make a little extra money. Now, I am the last of five children. <clears throat> which means I did not own a new article of clothing until I was 27 years old. And the worst part about that was that my two closest siblings were my sisters. So I would say to my mother, I don't wanna wear girls pants, I don't wanna wear a girls shirt. And my mother would say, there's no such thing as girls pants, there's no such thing as a girls shirt. And I would say, then how come my shirt sticks out right here? And she would say, be quiet, there are children in Biafra and so I was born after the inventions of rubber and wool but before the inventions of Thinsulate and Gore-Tex so my winter rain boot or my winter boots were essentially thin rubber rain boots with metal clasps so that you could tighten them and they were one size fits all which means my oldest brother. So by the time they got to me, they had four siblings worth of holes worn through the soles and burned through the uppers. So to render them winterproof, my mother would sit me down, put two wool socks on each foot, and then she would take space age, state of the art, arctic rated, wonder bread bags. (laughs) She had put two Wonder Bread bags on each foot, then take a rubber band, work it up my thigh, or up my calf, and slap it shut, so that within 15 minutes, my feet were numb. And I didn't know if it was frostbite or lack of circulation. But because my boots were too big for me, and my feet were encased in plastic, walking was quite a process, because I would lift my foot, but it would take two or three seconds for my foot to fully engage the boot. And then... I would lift the boot, put it back on the ground, and then it would take another two or three seconds for my foot to fully re-engage the boot. So thusly clad, Skeeter and I headed out. Now again, this was the 1970s, and I was what my buddy Andy calls the last of the bicycle generation, which means that shortly after breakfast on a summer day or a Saturday, your parents would say to you, go away. And you could go anywhere in the world on your bicycle so long as you were home for supper. Uh, If you wanted to go shoot pool in a smoky blues hall in Las Vegas, nobody cared. Long as you were home for supper. So my mother would say, go away. And I'd be like, okay, but can I have a box of matches and a stick of dynamite? And she would say, be careful. Remember what happened to Dan Carlyle. So... My mother was like, goodbye boys, go Knock on strangers' doors If they invite you in, by all means Enter their houses If they offer you food and drinks Say please and thank you See you when you get home Or not <laughs> You're the last of five It might take a while for us to notice So we headed out And this went immediately from not just an exercise and occupation, but also sort of a sociology experiment, because we would knock on a door, and if the man of the house opened the door, we would say, can we shovel your driveway? And he would say, how much? And we would say, five bucks, and he would say, have at it. But if the woman of the house opened the door, we would say, can we shovel your driveway? And she would say, oh, no, my husband is going to do that. (laughs) And she would shut the door and we would walk away and we'd get about 30 seconds down the road and the door would open and there would be the man of the house saying, boys, 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 come back, come back. So we learned that if the woman shut the door, we would just stay on the stoop and 30 seconds later, the door would open and there would be the man of the house. But he wouldn't see us because we were only this tall and he was looking down the street and when he couldn't locate us, we would learn a new word. And then we would make some sort of movement and that would startle him. (laughs) And we would learn another new word. (laughs) So by the end of the day, we each probably had $25, $30 cash money in our pockets. And the last house we did was a little old lady. And when we were done, she invited us in and she gave us cookies and cocoa. And then she paid us each $5. But she paid us in pennies. And we had to sit there and count out 500 pennies apiece, And the only vessel I had large enough to carry 500 pennies was a Wonder Bread bag. (laughs) And in case you're curious, about a third of a mile is how far you can get with 500 pennies in a Wonder Bread bag (laughs) before the Wonder Bread bag just gives up. So, all of that to say, Skeeter and I were well aware that the weight of American money has very little to do with the value of American money. So back to the Vacation Bible School. What Skeeter and I wanted to do most was to get in the baptismal. And I don't know why, except that we were seven and it seemed like the right thing to do. (laughs) So anytime the sanctuary was empty, anytime we could sneak away from class, we would go, and first we would just look. I don't know what we thought we'd see. I guess we thought we'd see Baptist sin, just sort of swimming around. (laughs) Like, evil coy, like, oh, there goes greed, there goes avarice. And then we'd be just about to get in, and the Baptist pastor would materialize behind us. Now, he was this gruff old guy. I say he was old, but now I realize he was probably 30. And... (laughs) we didn't go to that church but it was a small town so you know we knew who he was and he had this wonderful attitude he really didn't care whether or not you agreed with him because he knew that he was right (laughs) and that you would either one day come to see things his way or you would you know suffer in the fires forever (laughs) and he really didn't care which way you went because you know he just knew he was right and so (laughs) We would be just about to get in the baptismal, and he would appear behind us, and he would say, boys, 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 I know you want to get in there, but that's not a toy. And when a man does things purely for his own enjoyment and not for the benefit of others or the glory of God, he will be stained and tainted that others may know. Yeah. (laughs) We thought that was good stuff. Uh, It didn't... It didn't make us not want to get in the baptismal, but there was no denying it was good stuff. And that pastor hated the way we were doing the the offering, but any pastor worth his or her salt knows that there's only so many battles you can win. And taking on the little old ladies that run the vacation Bible school is not a wise career move. (laughs) So he wouldn't tell them to quit doing the offering that way. But by Thursday, he couldn't stand it anymore. And when it came time for the devotional, he got up to do the devotional and he didn't read a plithy little poem. No, he got up in the pulpit and he gave a full bore sermon. And he started by telling us the story of where Jesus is in the temple with the disciples and they're watching the people give the offering and the rich guys are throwing in tons and tons of cash. And then the little old lady comes up and she puts in her two mites or her two pennies and Jesus turns to the disciples And he says to the disciples, who gave the greatest offering? And one of the disciples, probably like Mark, he's like, hey, he's talking. Give me the red pencil. And then, (laughs) Jesus says, who gave the greater offering? And then one of the disciples give one of those answers that make me think that the reason Jesus chose those 12 guys is because he knew that they were morons, (laughs) And before you get self-righteous or offended, he knew that they were morons, and he could ask them things that you and I needed to know the answer to, and they would say the first thing that popped into their head, and then Jesus could explain the correct answer, and you and I would know the correct answer without ever having to open our mouths. He was already looking out for you. So... Jesus said who gave the greater offering and one of the disciples said clearly the rich men gave the greater offering and Jesus said no the rich men gave from their abundance while the little old lady gave from her poverty and then Jesus or the pastor explains that what that means is when you give an offering you're supposed to put yourself in a place where you become dependent upon God the word abundance means more than you need so if you're giving out of your abundance you, you haven't really given anything at all but the little old lady gave everything she had therefore she became completely. Completely dependent upon God. Thus, she had given the greater offering. Now, just parenthetically, two things: one, that is in no way a prosperity verse, and two, on behalf of any church treasurers listening, uh, if you are giving out of your abundance, don't quit. Uh, <laughs> it's not doing you any good, but the rest of us are benefiting. So, he he said that the rich men gave from their perfidy. We didn't know what it meant either. But it seemed like a weird place to keep your money. And then he told us that if we continued to give in this perfidious way, that the demons of hell would descend upon us, snatch our souls, and drag them down to the sulfuric pits. And we were like, yeah! Right? Because we were Methodists, and Methodists... We don't have demons of hell. We have covered dish dinners. So (laughs) we were moved. But again, not in the direction that the pastor had intended. It just caused Skeeter and I to remember the 1,000 pennies the little old lady had given us earlier that year. So we went home that night and we collected every penny in both of our houses. And we didn't put them in a Wonder Bread bag either we got an old wool hunting sock we probably had five inches in diameter maybe 18 inches of pennies and i'm talking pre-1983 pennies 174 pennies for the pound and the next morning when we went to church when we got to church skeeter held those pennies behind his back you're probably familiar with the idea that even the observation of an experiment can change the outcome of the experiment well the same is certainly true for a prank at church the observation of the prank can greatly change the consequences and so when it came time to give the offering Skeeter got last in line and he held those pennies between his back and the wall and he made his way slowly forward and when it was finally his turn uh, he did not gently introduce the pennies into the blue can he held that tube of pennies about 10 inches above the blue can and he just dropped it. and when those pennies hit that side of the scale that side of the scale dropped dramatically causing the other side of the scale to rise precipitously. And when the blue can hit the ground, it stopped, and the scale stopped, but the pink can didn't. It kept going, and when it got to the end of the binder's twine, binding it to the two by four, the binder's twine just ripped. And every eye in that sanctuary watched that pink can flying through the church. And it hit the ceiling, and when it hit the ceiling, it didn't stop. It punched a hole right through the ceiling and everyone was staring at that hole. And then the demons of hell started to pour forth thousands and thousands of bats just roiling. (laughs) Roiling out of the ceiling. And everyone ran for their lives. Everyone ran for the exits, clutching their souls tightly to their chests. Everyone but Skeeter and myself, because we knew this was our moment, (laughs) and we ran straight for the baptismal. And we didn't stop to look. We just put our hands on the side and we vaulted over the edge of the baptismal. And when we had gone just far enough that we could no longer halt our forward progression, when we were now nothing but slaves to Newton's first law, body in motion tends to stay in motion, which is very similar to Skeeter's first law, which is a body being chased by the law tends to stay in motion. But when all we could do is fly a little further forward and fall, we looked down and we saw that someone, some unknown person, had dyed the water red. (laughs) And a few minutes later, when we joined the rest of the kids on the front lawn of the church, we were limping and dripping and dyed pink. We heard a voice behind us that said, boys, 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 when a man does things purely for his own enjoyment and not for the benefit of others or the glory of God, he will be stained (laughs) and tainted that others may know. Thank you very much.
2: bringing down the house, that was Vacation Bible School, a story told for you by Bill Lepp, who not only served time as a Vacation Bible School camper, but was also, for a time, a minister himself, so he knows the territory. I love that story not just for the gut-busting humor that is part of nearly every Bill Lepp story, but also because it reminds me of the place that my church community occupied in my own young life. It was a place where my spiritual feelings began to take root, nourished by a community of friends and neighbors who would treat those feelings with care, of course. But it was also the environment in which I did all sorts of stuff. Went to the equivalent of vacation Bible school myself, sure, but also went camping and learned how to dance and worked on committees and mowed lawns and raised funds and was on stage for the first time in a church production of The Sound of Music. All the stuff of my young life that didn't revolve around school seemed to revolve around my church community. And listening to Bill's story brings back fond memories of the people I loved in that community and of all the things I learned there about everything. In a moment we'll have a little talk back about the story we just heard. As well as a performance of a Mark Twain story and a lot more. It's all coming up. I'm Sam Payne. (laughs) moment ago, it was our pleasure to hear Bill Lepp with a story called Vacation Bible School, recorded live in the Appleseed Performance Studio. And it's time for a little talk back. I'm joined around the desk by our producer, Dr. Brian Tanner. Brian, thanks for joining me. Hey, it's great to be here. And, of course, Lacey Ivy, one of our assistant producers. Lacey, thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's good to be here. And as we hear, I mean, that that was a really rollicking <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. And uh, Lacey, where does that story take you?
5: This brought me back to a memory that I don't think I've ever thought of aside from the time that it happened. And it's the most random little detail. Like he talked about his mom giving him a Wonder Bread bag. And I immediately <laughs> was just like flown back into my childhood. And that was the kind of bread we used to get all the time when I was a kid. But my grandma saved them. And, you know, like a lot of people save plastic bags and we usually use them for trash or whatnot. But (laughs) I specifically remember she went through this period of time. I don't know what it was for or what prompted her to do this, but she saved so many plastic bags. And then we all sat in the front room one day and we made blankets out of plastic bags for a homeless shelter. Hmm. I had no idea you could do this, and I thought maybe I was crazy, but I, like, looked it up just before I came in here, and you can find it on Instructables.com on how to make a plastic (laughs) blanket. Wow. I thought it was crazy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I got to tell you, Lacey, you know, even today, uh, my favorite grilled cheese sandwich, and I I come from a family of kind of grilled cheese sandwich snobs, I got to say, but for me, Mm -hmm. Wonder Bread and American cheese There's nothing better. Classic. (laughs) And I'll fight you. Brian, what what about you? Where did that Bill Lipp story take you? You know,
6: I've never been much of a prankster. You know, especially as a child, I was more like, let's follow all the rules, guys, kind of kid. But there were a couple times when I had— decided like okay I'm going to do something I think this will be kind of fun and this story kind of brought back especially that moment where they're standing in line to put their coins in and they they're knowing like okay we we got this plan we're going to do this I just felt that same like pit of my stomach kind of feeling like Okay, am I really going to do this? Am I really going to do this naughty thing? <laughs> and uh, and a lot of times I would just kind of back out and be like, yeah, "No, yeah. no, no, I can't right. go through with it, but yeah, it took me back to that place of just de- of deciding, like, am I going to go through and actually
2: do this thing? <laughs> <laughs> we love sharing with you the thoughts and memories that come to us as we listen to the stories here on the show. I've got one myself. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal.
0: The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed.
2: It was an era in high school when a cool double date meant a nice dinner at a table set up somewhere unusual. That's what Russ McKell and I were going for. And our brilliant idea was to set up dinner for our dates in a long-abandoned, century-old house on an overgrown lot in our little town. That's unusual, right? And a little bit spooky, sure, but we thought spooky would be kind of fun. And for more fun, we set up dinner in a room that we had rigged earlier with a kind of harmless prank, so that at just the right moment, one of us, it was going to be me, could nonchalantly bend down to tie a shoelace or something, and instead pull on a string along the floor that would make a door swing open to the yawning blackness beyond. Spooky, right? Russ and I thought that in this old house with nothing but candles burning, it would give our dates a good scare. And we had a great time setting it up. Russ figuring out just where we'd each need to sit for the maximum effect. And me making sure the string was good and hidden. And then the night came and we brought our dates to dinner at the house. And we were talking and eating pizza and having a really great time by candlelight. And then came the moment. I reach down and pull on the string and without a hitch, the door swings silently open, the darkness beyond it yawning. It was perfect. But at the moment of the prank, our dates are looking down at their pizza and the only one who sees the door open is Russ, and with the conversation and food, he has completely forgotten that we'd set up the prank at all. And so, it's Russ that screams when the door opens. Sometimes, after all, it's the prankster that falls prey to the prank. And sometimes, if that long-ago night is any indication, that can be pretty fun, too.
0: Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
2: Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. It's been a pleasure to sit around the desk with Brian Tanner and Lacey Ivy. Guys, thanks for joining me.
5: Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks.
2: In an episode of The Appleseed filled with stories about pranks and hoaxes and general mischief. Up next, a story of one of the greatest hoaxes in American history. It comes from Samuel Clemens, better known by his nom de plume, Mark Twain. Now, Twain was poking fun at a phenomenon that would have been well-known to his readers at the time. But the thing that he's going to talk about in this story has largely faded from memory over the past 150-plus years. So before we dive in, here's just a little context. In 1868, a New York tobacconist named George Hull, after a church argument about whether there had ever been giants living on the earth— decided to play a prank. He hired men to quarry a 10-foot block of stone, and telling them that it was going to be a stone used in a monument to Abraham Lincoln in New York, he secretly sent the stone to Chicago instead, where a stonecutter carved from it an enormous, anonymous man. The stone was aged with special acids and stains and beaten with knitting needles to make it look like it had pores. Then Hull hired men to bury the enormous man on the farm of his cousin, William Newell, in Cardiff, New York. And finally, Hull hired men to dig a well on the farm where they discovered the giant. Touted as the petrified remains of an ancient man, people came by the wagon load, gladly handing over money again and again for a glimpse of the fabulous Cardiff giant. The giant was eventually sold to a syndicate of investors who took the giant to Syracuse, where it drew such crowds that P.T. Barnum offered them $50,000 for it. And when they refused to sell, Barnum sent men to secretly measure and recreate the giant in wax. He exhibited his wax giant in New York City, insisting to a ravenous public that this was the real Cardiff giant and the other was a fake. In reference to a gullible public still shelling out the dough to witness one side or the other of this battle of giants, the head of the syndicate that now owned the original fake told reporters, There's a sucker born every minute. Words that would, in time, come to be incorrectly attributed to the owner of the fake giant, Mr. Barnum. The owners of the original Cardiff giant sued Barnum for calling his giant the real giant and theirs the fake one. But the judge ruled that Barnum could not be penalized for calling a fake giant a fake. Mark Twain gets his digs in with this tale. Recorded live as a Reader's Theater piece before our terrific studio audience. The readers here are Suzanne Christensen, Noah and Leah Kershisnik, and me. Here's A Ghost Story by Mark Twain. <laughs>
7: I took a large room far up Broadway in a huge old building whose upper stories had been wholly unoccupied for years until I came.
8: The place had long been given up to dust and cobwebs to solitude and silence.
0: I seemed groping among the tombs and invading the privacy of the dead that first night I climbed up to my quarters. For the
4: first time in my life, I felt a superstitious dread come (sighs) over me. And as I turned a dark angle of the stairway, and an invisible cobweb swung in my face and clung there, I shuddered as one who had encountered a phantom.
7: I was glad enough when I reached my room and locked out the mold and darkness. A cheery fire was burning in the grate, and I sat down before it with a comforting sense of relief.
0: For two hours I sat there, thinking of bygone times.
7: Recalling old scenes and summoning half-forgotten faces out of the mists of the past.
4: Listening in fancy, To voices that long ago grew
0: silent for all time.
8: And to once familiar songs that nobody sings now.
0: As my reverie softened down to a sadder and sadder pathos. The
7: shrieking of the wind outside softened to a wail.
0: The angry beating of the rain against the panes diminished to a tranquil patter.
8: And one by one the noises of the street subsided. Until the hurrying
0: footsteps of the last belated straggler died away in the distance. And left no
8: sound behind.
7: The fire had burned low and a sense of loneliness crept over me. I arose and undressed,
8: moving on tiptoe about the room, doing stealthily what I had to do.
0: I covered up in bed and lay, listening to the wind and the rain and the faint creaking of distant shutters until they lulled me to sleep.
4: I slept profoundly, but how long I do not know.
7: All at once I awoke and filled with a shuddering expectancy. All was still but my own heart. I could hear it beat.
0: Presently, the bedclothes began to slip away slowly toward the foot of the bed, as if someone were pulling them. I could not stir. I could not speak. Still, the blankets
4: slipped deliberately away till my breast was uncovered.
8: Then, with a great effort, I seized them and threw them over my head.
0: I I waited, listened, listened, Waited. Waited.
4: Once more that steady pull began, and once more I lay torpid a century of dragging seconds till my breast was naked again.
7: At last I roused my energies and snatched the covers back to their place and held them with a strong grip. I waited. waited. By and by.
8: I felt a faint tug and took a fresh grip. The tug strangled into a steady strain. It grew
7: stronger
8: and stronger. My hold parted.
7: And for the third time, the blanket slid away.
8: I groaned. And an answering groan
4: came from the foot of the bed.
7: Beaded drops of sweat stood upon my forehead. I was more dead than alive. Presently, I heard heavy footsteps in my room.
4: The step of an elephant, it seemed to me. It was not like anything
0: human. But it was moving away from There was me. relief in that. I heard it approach the door. Pass out without moving bolt or lock. And wander away among the dismal corridors. Straining the floors and joists until they creaked again as it passed. And then
4: silence reigned once more.
8: When my excitement had calmed, I said to myself,
7: This is a dream simply a hideous dream.
8: And so I lay, thinking it over, until I convinced
7: myself that it was a dream, and I was happy again. I got up and struck a light, and found that the locks and bolts were just as I had left them. I took my pipe and lit it, and was just sitting down before the fire when... Down
4: went the pipe out of my nerveless fingers. The blood forsook my cheeks. And my placid breathing was cut short with a gasp.
8: In the ashes on the hearth. Side by side with my own bare footprint, was another, so vast, that in comparison mine was but an
7: infant's! I had had a visitor, and the elephant foot-tread was explained.
0: I put out the light, and returned to bed,
8: palsied with fear. I lay a long time, peering into the darkness,
7: and listening. Then, I heard a grating noise overhead like the dragging of a heavy body across the floor.
4: In distant parts of the building I heard the muffled slamming of doors. Stealthy footsteps creeping in and out Among the corridors up and down the stairs Sometimes these noises approached my door Hesitated and went away again
7: I heard the clanking of chains Faintly in remote passages I heard muttered sentences
8: (laughs) Half uttered screams That seemed smothered violently
4: And the swish of invisible garments The rush of invisible wings Then Then I became conscious conscious That that my my chamber chamber was invaded invaded, That that I I was was not
8: alone. alone I heard sighs and breathings about my
7: bed and mysterious whisperings. Three little spheres of a soft phosphorescent light appeared on the ceiling directly over my head, clung and glowed there a moment, and then dropped two of them upon my face and one upon the pillow. They
0: They spattered spattered liquidly and
8: felt warm. Intuition told me they had turned to gouts of blood as they fell and I needed no light to satisfy myself of that.
7: I saw pallid faces, dimly luminous, and white, uplifted hands. The
4: whispering ceased. The voices and the sounds. And a solemn stillness followed. I I waited and
7: and listened. listened. I felt that I must have light or die. I was weak with fear. I slowly raised myself up
8: toward a sitting posture, and my face came in contact with a clammy hand! I fell fell back back like
4: like a stricken stricken invalid. Then
7: I heard the rustle of a garment. It seemed to pass to the door and go out. When everything was still once more, I crept out of bed, sick and
8: feeble, and lit the gas with a hand that trembled as if it were aged with a
7: hundred years.
8: In
0: the same moment, I I heard that elephantine tread tread
7: again. I noted its approach nearer and nearer along the musty halls, and dimmer and dimmer the light waned. The tread reached my very door and paused.
0: The light had dwindled to a sickly blue,
7: and all things about me lay in a spectral twilight. The door did not open, and yet I felt a faint gust of air fan my cheek, and presently was conscious of a huge, cloudy presence before me. I
0: watched it with fascinated eyes.
7: A pale
8: glow stole over the thing. Gradually its cloudy folds took shape. An arm appeared, then legs, then a body, and at last a great sad face looked out of the vapor. Stripped of its filmy housings, muscular and comely, the majestic Cardiff giant loomed above me.
4: All my misery vanished, for a child might know that no harm could come with that benignant countenance.
0: My (sighs) cheerful spirits returned at once, and in sympathy with them, the gas flamed up brightly again. Never a lonely outcast was so glad to welcome company as I was to greet the friendly giant. I said... Why, is
7: it
3: nobody but you?
7: (sighs) Do you know I have been scared to death for the last two or three hours? I am most honestly glad to see you. I wish I had a chair. Here, here, don't try and sit down on that thing. (laughs)
4: But it was too late. He was in it before I could stop him, and down he went. I never saw a chair
0: shivered so in my life. Stop! Stop! You'll ruin ev- Too late. There was another crash, and another chair was
7: resolved to its original elements. Confound it! Haven't you got any judgment at all? Do you want to ruin all the furniture on the place? Here, here, you petrified fool!
4: But it was no use. Before I could arrest him, he had sat down on the bed, and it was a melancholy ruin.
7: Now what sort of a way is that to do? First you come lumbering about the place, bringing a legion of vagabond goblins along with you to worry me to death, and then when I overlook an indelicacy of costume which would not be tolerated anywhere by cultivated people except in a respectable theater, you <laughs> repay me by wrecking all the furniture you can find to sit down on. And why will you? You damage yourself as much as you do me. You've broken off the end of your spinal column and have littered up the floor with chips of your hams till the place looks like a marble yard. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You are big enough to know better. Well
8: I will not break any more furniture But what am I to do? I've not had a chance to sit down for a
7: century
0: And the tears came into his eyes (sighs) Poor devil I said
7: Should not have been so harsh with you Uh, And you're an orphan, too, no doubt. Uh, But sit down on the floor here. Nothing else can stand your weight. And besides, we cannot be sociable with you away up there above me. I want you down where I can perch on this high stool and gossip with you face to face. So
0: he sat down on the floor and lit a pipe, which I gave him, threw one of my red blankets over his shoulders, inverted my bath on his head, helmet fashion, and made himself
4: picturesque and comfortable. Then he crossed his ankles while I renewed the fire and exposed his prodigious
0: feet to the grateful warmth. I noticed he looked tired and I spoke of it.
8: Tired? He said. Well, I should think so. (laughs) I will tell you all about it since you've treated me so well. I am the spirit of the petrified man that lies across the street there in the museum. I'm the ghost of the Cardiff giant. I can have no rest, no peace, till they've given that poor body burial again out there under Newell's farm. I love that place. I love it (laughs) as one loves his old home. There's no peace for me like the place, the peace I feel when I'm there. Now, what was the most natural thing for me to do to make men satisfy this wish? Terrify them into it! Haunt the place where the body lay. So I haunted the museum night after night. I even got other spirits to help me. But it did no good, for nobody ever comes to the museum at midnight. (laughs) Well, then it occurred to me to come over the way haunt this place a little while. Night after night, we've shivered around through these mildewed halls, dragging chains and groaning and whispering and tramping up and down stairs. Till, to tell you the truth, I'm almost worn out. But when I saw a light in your room tonight... I roused my energies again and went at it with a deal of the old freshness. But I'm entirely tired out.
7: Give me, I beseech you, give me some hope.
0: I lit off my perch in a burst of excitement and exclaimed... This
7: transcends everything that ever did occur. Why, you poor blundering old fossil. You have had all your trouble for nothing. You have been haunting a plaster cast of yourself. The real Cardiff Giant is in Albany.
4: A fact. The original fraud was ingeniously and fraudfully duplicated and exhibited in New York as the only genuine Cardiff giant.
0: To the unspeakable disgust of the owners of the real Colossus. At the
4: very same time that the latter was drawing crowds at a museum in Albany.
0: Confound it! Don't you know your own remains? I never saw such an eloquent look of shame, of pitiable humiliation overspread a countenance before. The petrified man rose slowly to his feet and said, Honestly?
7: Honestly? Is that true? As true as I am sitting here. He stood irresolute a moment,
4: unconsciously from old habit, thrusting his hands where his pantaloons' pockets should
0: have been, and finally said,
8: Well, I never felt so absurd before. (laughs) My son, if there's any charity left in your heart for a poor, friendless phantom like me, don't let this get out. (laughs) Think how you would feel if you had made such an ass of yourself.
4: I heard his stately tramp die away, step by step, down the stairs and out into the deserted street, and felt sorry that he was
0: gone, poor fellow. And sorrier still that he had carried off my blanket and my bathtub!
2: That was Mark Twain's A Ghost Story. Now, as for the Cardiff giant itself, you can today go see George Hull's original fake giant on display at the Farmer's Museum in Cooperstown, New York. Sounds like the perfect destination for an April Fool's road trip. In an episode of The Appleseed filled with stories of pranks and hoaxes and general mischief, we've got time for one more thing. And to introduce you to this little bit of the show, here's just a moment from the Pixar movie Up. In this moment, old man Carl Fredrickson has just been disturbed by young Russell, who is working on a merit badge for assisting the elderly. And in order to get rid of Russell, Carl makes reference to an old trick. You ever heard of a snipe?
0: Snipe?
2: Bird, beady eyes. (laughs) That's the late, great Ed Asner as Carl Fredrickson. And Russell, played by the young Jordan Nagai, gets awfully interested in whatever a snipe is. Mr. Fredrickson goes on to say that a snipe has been wrecking his azaleas, and he wonders if anyone can help him. Me, me,
7: I'll do it! Oh, I don't know. It's awfully crafty.
2: But Russell is insistent, and Mr. Fredrickson tells Russell that he has to walk around clapping his hands three times to get the snipe to come. And off goes Russell, looking for snipe. Snipe
0: Here, snipey,
9: snipey.
2: Again, that's from the Pixar movie Up. And make no mistake, there is such thing as a snipe. In fact, the word snipe refers to a whole family of birds, about 26 species in all. But they probably don't live in Carl Fredrickson's neighborhood. And if you've heard anyone giving a knowing chuckle in the movie theater when you see Up, it may be because that person at one point or another went on a snipe hunt. What's a snipe hunt? Well, if you've ever been on one, you know. And if you haven't, maybe it's enough to say that this episode of The Appleseed is all about pranks, hoaxes, and general mischief. Let's leave it at that, perhaps. Except to add that references to snipe hunts go all the way back to the 1840s. And in every generation from that time to this, first-time campers have been treated to snipe hunts by older, more experienced campers. But why take our word for it? It's happened to a lot of people So we found a lot of people to tell you what a snipe hunt is like. And it's probably safe to let the snipe out of the bag and tell you that not a single snipe was harmed in the making of this recording.
9: So I went snipe hunting.
10: It's been over 40 years since this experience happened to me.
9: Well, let's see. I was around... 12 years old, and we were at a camp.
10: Maybe I was 10.
9: Went to a girls' camp.
10: Uh, But I remember being a Cub Scout.
1: I was a Boy Scout. My dad was on the uh, camp out with me.
10: All of the leaders kept talking about all day long how we were going to go snipe hunting.
1: And
9: they'd been talking about snipe hunting the entire summer.
10: Nobody had ever seen one before.
9: Part of the initiation was to go snipe hunting.
10: Uh, So just, you know, wandering around all day long, are you going to go hunting? Are you going to go hunting?
9: Hiding it up for me, and I was I was a little nervous. I didn't exactly know what to expect.
10: I have to go hunting. Come on. We gotta be. We gotta buck up.
9: It's like nighttime and it's dark. And how scary they were, and how sometimes bad things could happen and what would happen if we got bit. And so we had to be really careful. And they like pull us out of our tents, and we're like,
1: they're like, we're going snipe hunting, you know, the older girls.
10: And we were just scared.
1: It was pitch black. We went out into the woods in the middle of the night. And we're just walking around in the dark. You know? I had dressed appropriately in camouflage. And- had been purchased from the Army-Navy surplus. Uh, I even did the uh, the grease paint under my eyes because I didn't want the snipe to find me.
9: So we all went and we got some mint toothpaste and put it right under our eyes because snipes don't like the smell of mint.
10: <laughs> so.
9: I, I don't think it was uh, super planned. <laughs>
10: uh, my dad has a, a like a burlap sack.
9: So we went out. It was pitch black. We're in this... This group of probably about 20 girls were all linked arms, and they put one older girl with every new girl. So there's probably about five or six of us that had
10: never done this before. We all get in a big group when we go out. I
9: think I remember making noise or something. Like, maybe we were, like, clapping and making some noise to get them to come out. All of a sudden we get to this clearing where there's a lot of bushes around. We start hearing this rustling in all the bushes and then we see some little beady eyes in the bushes. Do you hear it? There's a snipe over there. And they're like, oh my gosh, the snipes, the snipes.
1: And my dad comes up with the bag, got one, I got one. I don't know what the odds are. We did, we did find some snipes. Did I catch a snipe? No, I did not, but you know what? My dad, my dad caught two. Two snipes in his gunny sack. And yes, it was a gunny sack. And go gather around the fire so you can see it.
9: And I just started bawling. I just lost at this point. I was so scared. There were snipes all around us.
10: Yes, yeah, we all want to see it. We're all excited. We all want to see it. And he opens up the bag and there's nothing there. And he throws the bag
1: at us. And it was just at that point we are like, huh? Did I get to see the snipe? Well, my dad, a notorious catch and release fisherman, also a catch-and-release snipe hunter.
9: And they told us it was all just a joke. They had some girls out in the bushes with some lasers for the red eyes of the
1: snipes. He told me that he, yes, in fact, captured two snipes, put them in the gunny sack, but then had to let them go. I never got to see them, but in the one snipe hunt that I went on, I did, in fact, by proxy of my father, catch two snipes.
9: But then the fun part was when I was older, one of the older girls at girls' camp a few years later. And then I got to take the girls' snipe hunting.
1: And I've never gone hunting since because I don't want to ruin my 100% perfect record.
2: (laughs) So, yeah, it it was quite the experience. And that'll do it for an episode of The Appleseed, filled with stories of pranks, hoaxes, and general mischief. Join us again, won't you? You can find this episode or any episode from our archive on the BYU Radio app at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or by Googling the Appleseed Podcast. And if you found us today on the podcast, rate us and leave us a review. It helps people find the show. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed.